0: This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnack. No matter what you read about Yugo-nostalgia or where, the name Mitya Velikonja will come up. The Slovene scholar of this and related phenomena is probably the most quoted writer on the subject. In addition to scores of articles, book chapters and conference papers, he has authored the definitive book on one facet of Yugo-nostalgia. Tito-stalgia, a study of nostalgia for Josip Broz. I use this book Rock and Retro, New Yugoslavism and Contemporary Slovenian Popular Music as a foundation for the story in episode 20, Rock and Retro. And he has a new book out, Post-Socialist Political Graffiti in the Balkans and Central Europe. Mitya Velikonya is a professor of cultural studies and head of the Center for Cultural and Religious Studies at University of Ljubljana's Faculty of Social Sciences. He frequently guest lectures in universities around the world, most recently at Yale. He is erudite. I mean, if you got him to talk about, I don't know, cement, he'd get into semantics. But most importantly, he is an all-around good guy. He spoke with me from Ljubljana, and let me tell you, it was quite a ride. So strap in, sit back, and let's rock and roll. I mean, Lou Reed, Jean Baudrillard, Rachel the Replicant, Sigmund Freud, Termites, Ratko Mladic, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Che Guevara, Antony Gramsci, assorted anthropologists, non-aligned citizens, Yugoslav soldiers, Slovak punk rockers, Bosnian rappers, and of course, Josip Brostito they all make an appearance. Before we get to it, as always, this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia is brought to you by you. Thank you to everyone who has signed up to support me and Remembering Yugoslavia on Patreon or donated on the website via PayPal. If you like the show, please support its production by joining these generous people at patreon.com slash remembering Yugoslavia or donating one time at paypal.me slash remembering you. That's paypal.me slash remembering Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from and how did you get here? How has your background influenced your scholarship?
1: My story is very similar like the one that Lou Reed uh, described in the kid from a small town. So I was born in Nova Gorica, which was uh, a new town. Uh, after the Second World War, there was a dispute between Italy and Yugoslavia for some cities and towns uh, in the border. And uh, the Gorica, which was always a multicultural city inhabited by the Italians, Slovenians, Furlans, uh, Jews, and others, uh, was given to Italy. And the communist authorities in Slovenia and in Yugoslavia decided to build nova Gorica, so a, a new, better Gorica than the, the old Gorica. So they started to build a town practically out of nothing. And my parents moved there as teachers in the 50s, I was living uh, in apartment buildings uh, that were called Ruski bloki, Russian apartment buildings, because they were made uh, on uh, Russian plans. And even today, they are known as uh, Ruski bloki. So I was born near the border, 300 meters from the border with Italy. In Slovenia, in Gorica. we never felt border, you know, or, you know, iron curtain between east and west. For me, going to Italy was something the most normal, obvious, you know. So pr- for us, practically, there was no border there. My second language is Italian, not Serbo-Croatian or English. Parts of my family are living in Trieste. They're Italians, they're Slovenians, Istrians, you know. So, you know, very different, from the very different backgrounds, you know. So for me, you know, 1991 was not that big, you know, boom as as it was presented, not only in other parts of Eastern Europe, but also in Slovenia and Yugoslavia as well, as something completely changed. Well, for me, not that much. And another element also interesting is that our social status, the social status of my family, I mentioned my my parents were teachers, were very similar to my family living in Italy. They were also, you know, like lower middle class people. So, you know, we could compare good and bad sides of both system. And as I said, this also shaped me very, very much what I am uh, today, both as scholar and both as as me. (laughs) Where were you when Tito died? I was in finishing primary school. I remember that I was practicing a sport there and I came to to practice a sport and uh, our coach said, you know, Tito died and go home.
0: I met Mitya last year at his home in Ljubljana. I had reached out for an interview, but he did me one better. He said, if you want my take on Yugoslavia, let me make you a Yugoslav National Army lunch. He had indeed been a cook in the UNA during his compulsory military service at a border post in his home republic.
1: When you came to Ljubljana, when you visit me for the first time, I hope that we'll meet some other time and I can invite you again to my lunch. I made you a typical Yugoslav Army lunch consisting of soup, of beans with meat, salad, and some sweet it was uh, uh, sutliash some sort of like a rice pudding you know uh, and that was it for the record there was some beer and wine and rakia as well so i was a yugoslav soldier you know there were 25 of us can you imagine 25 kids you know of 18 19 years old stranded up there in the mountains you know so again you know this is also for me another precious lesson you know for my you know social science study I was told when I came to the army, you know, that you will be cooked. Okay, so do you know to cook? No. I said, you know, you know, how can I cook? I cannot cook, you know. Well, this is your problem, my superior said. And then, you know, I was taught how to cook by two of my comrades. One was a Hungarian from, from Vojvodina, from northern Serbia. The other one was a Croat from Bosnia. And they said, you know, I was very, you know, stressed. You know, I smoked two cigarettes at the same time. How, how can I cook, you know? But they taught me and, uh, you know, it's, it's a process like any other process, you know. So when I was 18, 19, and at that time, you know, I was learning fast and at the end everything turned well, you know. And soldiers were happy and I was happy and it lasted quite long. But still, you know, I survived and I, and I cook.
0: <laughs> the move to Ljubljana from a small town after your military service was then a pretty logical one.
1: Literally, I, you know, from the army, I just, you know, moved to Ljubljana. Can you imagine what kind of revelation it was? You know, this s- small but very vibrant city of Ljubljana. This was mid and late 80s. I always say that, that I have two degrees. One was in my home faculty, Faculty for Social Sciences. And th- the other one was on the streets of Ljubljana in the clubs. Everything was out there. So it was a very vibrant uh, environment at that time. Uh, So on one side, you know, we were uh, learning how the society functions, how socialism is the best political system, how Yugoslavia works, how our economy is wonderful and so on. But on the other side, in the streets, in the clubs, in the independent uh, venues, you know, everything was quite different from that. Also, what, what in a way influenced my theoretical and also lifestyle position is that I lived Half of my life in the previous system and in previous states, so in socialist, multicultural Yugoslavia and a little bit more than half life in the post-socialist condition in Slovenia, which is definitely shaped by two ideologies and political practices so ethno-nationalism and neoliberalism. So I have experiences both good and bad from both sides. so it's for me this is an extremely extremely important position, not only as a scholar, but also as a person. So, you know, I'm not an easy catch to neither nostalgia or demonization of those times. One life,
0: two countries, two regimes. Let's start with Yugoslavia and socialism. What were some of the good of your experience living in socialist Yugoslavia?
1: For me, you know, everything that I miss now, in a way. For example, multiculturalism, you know. Ljubljana is a vibrant small town, you know, 250,000 people, you know. There's a lot of things going on uh, on all levels, you know. But it's very, very monocultural, you know. There's almost no other, you know, racist students that are coming via Erasmus program. You know, they're always asking me, you know, how come that there are no people from other races, you know. Immediately, if you go across the border to Austria, to Italy, you see that even small towns like Gorizia that I mentioned before it's much, much more multicultural than it, that it is Slovenia now, which is in a way a co- uh, consequence of the thirty years of the very strict ethno-national politics. It's very difficult to get an asylum in in Slovenia, or you know, even the the the, the, the permit to work or or to live. You know, so this is for me very very disturbing, especially because I was traveling quite a lot uh, and i was also working as an academic in different places in the states and also in europe and, and i saw you know how this multicultural element is important you know for everyone you know from from academia from everyday life you know so this is something that in a way i miss the second thing you know that in a way i appreciated very much about yugoslavia was a genuine authentic anti-fascist struggle Yugoslavia was the only country beside Albania that was liberated by its own forces. At the end, partisan forces had 800,000 men and women under arms. So it was a strong army uh, that liberated almost entirely Yugoslavia by itself with the help of course of the Soviet armies up in the north uh, and also with the support you know from the Western allies. but this was you know it came bottom up. And for me, this is a heyday of this region. If you ask me, how could people horizontally mobilize and do great things you know, to liberate its country from, from Quislings and from Nazi fascism? You know? So this is something, again, that is now forgotten. And this is one of the sources also for, for nostalgia that we'll discuss a little bit later. Then emancipation of three marginalized groups in previous system, women, youth and peasants. This is extremely, extremely important. And here I see that, you know, the post-socialist society is making lots of mistakes on these three levels. Then what I also appreciate about old times was modernization, the accelerated modernization. Ex-Yugoslavia, from Slovenia to Macedonia, there were a lot of regional differences, of course, you know. was a pre-modern society, typical agrarian society. I can tell you also from the experience of my own family. As I mentioned, my parents were the first educated people in, you know, their their families as teachers, you know. For them becoming teachers was, as for us, I don't know, going to Mars or something, you know, inimaginable. And especially for women, for a girl, you know, from peasant girl becoming a teacher was a big thing. So this is, again, something, you know, this modernization that at the end in the 80s and in also now stopped and also went in in reverse. If you ask me, on many many uh, levels. Not I'm not speaking only about economic level, but social and others. And then also, you know, this political alternative, you know, self-managing socialism, which of course was, was far from ideal, far from you know how it was proclaimed, but still in a way it worked. You know, horizontally connecting you know people in solving their problems uh, in their workplace, in their local communities, and so on. And on the other side, again, and now I'm returning to my first point, uh, the non-alignment movement and active coexistence. When I started to study in, in Ljubljana in mid-80s, it was very interesting, and this was for the first time. I know that for you North Americans, this is something very normal. Uh, but I for the first time, I had in my class students from from other races, There were three from Africa and one was from Iraq, an Arab from Iraq. And this was for the first time that I could speak in my poor English at that time. And also their English was poor, you know. But this was, again, you know, something that I will never forget. What I'm trying to say is that they put a lot of effort also in knowing other places, not only the local or uh, European or white, uh, but also other places. That's quite a lot. What about the negatives? Of course, you know the, the uh, one-party system. You know the, 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 the communists that, that had a positive role uh, during the war of liberation and also maybe in the first uh, phase of modernization. Then started to, in a way, to block the progress. There were attempts in the sixties in Serbia, in Slovenia, and Croatia, late sixties, early seventies, the liberals in the communist party, but the old forces in a way stopped them. So my point is that those who created second Yugoslavia were also to blame that it finished like this. They were not able to transform or to leave the power and to modernize the society when it was still time. 80s, it was already too late. Yugoslavia was already controlled in financial terms from the international monetary fund and other institutions because it could not follow anymore the path that it started in late 40s and in 50s so in the first phase you know they were very successful also in the accumulation of the capital that it's needed for the rapid modernization but then from the 60s and 70s they started to lose their initiative and they at that time you know including you know the the, the leadership, Tito and his circle, you know, they should at that time, you know, if you ask me now where the collapse of Yugoslavia started, you know, when the old forces, the old boys did not leave power to those who were still very progressive, they were still very left leaning, you know. At the end, a lot of them were ex partisans, you know, but they were denied, you know, in all these three major centers, Belgrade, Ljubljana, and Zagreb. Then political repression, um, again, after the Second World War, you know, the, 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 Liquidations of, of of people who should be tried or should be, not what what happened after the war and also repression after uh, that lasted you know throughout the time of, of uh, Yugoslavia.
0: You're best known as the scholar of nostalgia, Yugo nostalgia to be more accurate. Before we delve deeper into this, one big element of Yugo nostalgia is music. What's your favorite Yugoslav era band?
1: Termiti from Rijeka, Termit. and their hit Vieron Pas, the faithful, the faithful dog. The Kamul time we will not speak more, but will bark one to another. And this is maybe this time of this wildness that is happening now, this urbanization of the region.
0: Well, Mitya, I have a surprise for you. It just so happens that the legendary punk band from my homeland, Slovakia, Slobodna Europa, Free Europe, covered this very song and they kindly gave me permission to play it for you. Before I hit play, everyone, follow Slobodna Europa on social media and buy their music and swag. Find the links in the show notes at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. What's your favorite current band?
1: A Repetitor from Belgrade. But there are also some others. For example, you know, Bosnian hip-hop scene, you know, the Disciplinska Komisija, fantastic, you know, collective, you know, that are doing fantastic, fantastic songs, very critical, you know. So I'm saying to my students, you know, read these critical books and or re- listen to Disciplinska Komisija. Frankie and, 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 and Edomica and others, you know, fantastic. Your first book was
0: on religion in Bosnia and Herzegovina. How did you get into that and how did you then transition to your current study?
1: I was interested in ideological turn, you know, uh, when it, w- which which happened in early 90s, you know. So, this was a complete upside down situation, you know, from socialism to capitalism, from multiculturalism to ethno nationalism, from fair society to the society that is divided again, into some very firm hierarchical structure. From, you know, progressive ideas to neoconservatism. you know, the, the rise of the extreme right of the church as a social and political and economic factor, you know. This is something that we did not expect in the late 80s, you know. So we were, I can say now, we were quite naive at the end. But, you know, we started to realize what is going on in the early 90s, you know, when those who were fighting the previous system, you know, and we supported them, started to get into power and to, to do the, sa- the same thing, you know. So in a way, this was quite a, like, like a hangover, you know. It turned, you know, c- completely different as we expected. So many of my colleagues from the late 80s, you know, are repeating, you know, the same phrase, but not only here. I hear it also elsewhere where I go in Eastern Europe, you know. Is this what we fought for? That now we are, you know, facing new autocrats, illiberal <laughs> reactionary democracy, the rule of banality, you know, the triumph of vulgarity, you know, as it is happening unfortunately now also in Slovenia, you know. So many people are quite stressed because of this, especially uh, because of this, as I said, you know, lost expectations and also lost promises. So I was trying, you know, this was my my project of the nineties, you know, to dive into, you know, the the history and also of the present of the region in terms of religious and ethnic identities. Because this is one of the specificities of the Balkans. So this very close connection between the religious and ethnic identity. 150 years ago, there were no ethnic identities whatsoever, but there were very strong religious identities. And then slowly, you know, uh, under the influence also of the ideologies that were present in Central and Western Europe at that time, very firm, like nationalism, ethno-nationalism, they started to turn, you know, the religious identities into uh, national
0: uh, identities. All right, you go Nostalgia. What's the story? Where do things stand now?
1: Thirty years ago, you know, in uh, 1990, 1991, no one expected that that nostalgia for those times, as it is said on uh, Avremena, would come out so so quickly and in so many on so many different layers. And this is again not just some East European or Balkan uh, curiosity. We find this strong nostalgic current, you know also in other, you know, places of the Western world. You know, nostalgia is one of the ideological currents and uh, cultural phenomena also elsewhere. This double identity, you know, living very close to the Italian border, you know, I can follow also what is going on there, you know. So this shows about 70s and 80s, golden era of Italian music, blah, blah. And also when I was living in the States, there's so many elements of nostalgia also there. Christopher Lash wrote in one of his books in the 90s, how nostalgia for the imperial grandeur was extremely important in the times of neocon revolution, you know, Margaret Thatcher, let's make Britain great again, you know, the Falkland War, you know, so don't mess with us. Or also with uh, uh, Reagan's ideology back in the uh, early 80s. So what we are facing in Eastern Europe and especially in ex-Yugoslavia is that together with this cultural nostalgia, which again, you know, is a a spread phenomenon everywhere, Uh, It is, in a way, upgraded also with this political change. And the simplest, you know, the simplest definition of nostalgia is that more changes there are in in a society, more we are nostalgic for the previous times. And again, this is not something, you know, that happened uh, only now in the 90s and 2000. I can recall my grandmother. She was born in uh, Austro-Hungarian times. And she was recalling so many times, you know, good old times, uh, in Austria, when men were men, women were women, there was order, you know, and blah, blah, you know, so kind of golden period, which is not only connected, of course, that because she was young at that time, but also what was happening, kind of implicit critic of what was happening later on with the coming of fascism and the Second World War and things like that. So nostalgia always explains more about what is wrong now than how it was good back then. And I you know, I want to take it away from the memory studies, which is, again, a fantastic field of research, very popular today, into the field of narration. Nostalgia is an invented story. It's a fiction story about the past that never existed as, as such. It's not how we once were. It's how we never were. And the key of nostalgia is dissatisfaction with what is going on today. So the shortest definition of nostalgia would be that this is retrospective utopia. And of course, when we are moving now to Yugoslavia, you know, so things went wrong from, from the beginning, you know, of the nineties, from the beginning of so-called, you know, uh, democratization, pluralization, democratic revolution, and 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 so on, you know. So wars, pauperization, you know, in different parts, including the, the parts that are more prosperous than the other, including in Slovenia. There's so much of culture and also political nostalgia. But the strongest is in the places where they were hit most in war-torn Bosnia and Herzegovina I did field works a few summers there uh, back in 2000 uh, and there nostalgia is extremely extremely strong not only the usual one you know the cultural you know memories of everyday life decent life social justice and so on you know but Again, you know, mostly a political nostalgia, how, how it happened and how it was better uh, b- before when we were just neighbors, not enemies as now. And one of the strongest parts of Hugo nostalgia is, of course, the figure of Tito, who, again, you know, was extremely important in the whole ideology of the second Yugoslavia. And in my view, uh, he was uh, as important for creating second Yugoslavia as, in a way, also destroying it 10 years after he died. Your book, Tito Nostalgia
0: came out in 2008. How has this phenomenon, this nostalgia for Tito, and perhaps Yugo nostalgia as such, evolved since then?
1: It is evolving very much. You know, the nostalgia, Yugo nostalgia, or other, you know, nostalgias as well, the Soviet nostalgia. You know, no one expected, as I said, 30 years ago. And it started slowly in alternative scene. The first Yugo nostalgic parties were in Metelkova squat in, in, in Ljubljana and in some other places, you know, out of the mainstream. But, you know... As it happens with all subcultures, you know the commercial sector smells money, and you know, also nostalgia always sells. So now it is coming more and more to the fore, also in consumer culture, for example. Today you can buy a Brandy Tito or a beer Marshall or something like this, or Chigavara's T-shirts. They are they are sold in the major. Uh, not only local again this is not some east european or the balkan or slovenian specific you know but also with the, with the global with the global supermarket chains you know so it's it's sellable and if you sell whether it's left or right you know good or bad who who cares as long as it sells it's becoming more and more commercialized there's so much of this nostalgic tourism to places of the heroic battles of the second world war to the places, I don't know, where Tito was born, in Kumrovets in Croatia, or in his tomb in, 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 in Belgrade, you know. Nostalgic parties. Again, who is going to nostalgic parties? Old comrades? I don't think so. Kids who are listening to the music that they, you know, their parents or even grandparents were listening to them, like Bielodugma and others, or, or, you know, the punk period or the new wave period. It is not a question that this music was good or bad, you know. So nostalgic would say, well, oh, this this music today sucks, you know, Th- that was a good time for music. No, it was, you know, music as, as such with, you know, good and bad sides. And another element I would like to mention here when you are asking me what is happening now 30, 14 years ago. Nostalgia is losing this emotional element. So the shortest definition of retro would be nostalgia minus emotion. Retro is dry. Retro is in a way, more technical. For me as a culture producer or, you know, producer of some some merchandise, you know, I can think what I can, you know, discuss and I can study what would sell, you know, what kind of elements from the past would be popular now. And if it is a little bit edgy, like Yugoslav times, you know, playing with this idea, you know, of uh, authoritarian regime, but on the other side, also progressive in many, many ways, you know, these cultural innovations that I mentioned before, you know, so you play with this idea and you capitalize them, you know. So what I'm trying to say is that it's becoming more and more uh, mainstream to the horror of many neoconservatives, many of them who were fervent communists back, back in the 60s and 70s. So it is coming more and more to the fore, you know.
0: There are a lot of people born after Yugoslavia disintegrated who too seem to be experiencing some kind of nostalgia for that country or perhaps even that system. What's that about?
1: Nostalgia is more and more second-hand narrative. The usual definition of nostalgia would be that I can be nostalgic for the things that I really experienced. No, today you can be also nostalgic for the things that you never experienced. Jean Baudrillard writes in one of his essays, most of the nostalgic images, nostalgic reveries are coming today from the mass media. This was even before the internet revolution. Can you imagine how much of these images of the better past are today? Because you pick up, you know, fashion, you can pick up, I don't know, political orientation or whatever. You can also pick up Your favorite period in the recent past. So it is ready made. So I call, you know, this phenomena nostalgia. You know, nostalgia is kind of new nostalgia, nostalgia of the people who never experienced the period for which they are nostalgic. So it's very similar to the situation of, I don't know, the Blade Runner, the first Blade Runner when the memories of these replicants can be implanted as well. This Rachel is telling her own memories, but these memories were implanted. And this is a fantastic metaphor of how nostalgia, not only memories, but how nostalgia, so the story of the prettified past, romanticized past, exists as such. It's not only generational. There's so much of nostalgia on the internet today. In the new songs of kids you know, who were born you know, a decade after the end of Yugoslavia, So these posts on internet, you know, Facebook groups, they're not not consisting of the old comrades, but of the kids, you know, who are flirting with this idea of progressivity, you know, that was in a way functioning, you know, some decades ago. They don't know much about real historical events, fact, and so on. But they knew, you know, that they fought fascism, that they fought for uh, emancipation of women, of the poor, and so on. So all these, you know, ideas are related to something that previous generations already experienced
0: you've talked about emotional or sentimental nostalgia you've talked about commercial or commercialized nostalgia but it's another form or aspect of nostalgia you go or otherwise that you emphasize
1: what is extremely important for me is this political nostalgia emancipatory nostalgia which is active which is engaged which criticizes the present from the perspective of better past so again, you know, the, the nostalgia can be also a strong political force. I mentioned before it can be used by all kinds of you know political forces and parties, from churches to conservatives, but also for the criticism of what is going on today in Eastern Europe, and especially in next Yugoslavia, so against ethno-nationalism and against neoliberalism.
0: You said that you nostalgia is most experienced in the places that suffered most from the dissolution of Yugoslavia, like Bosnia and Herzegovina. Yet when I travel to Yugoslavia-related places, Tito's birthplace, monuments, and so on, most visitors seem to be from Slovenia. As the guide at Tito's cave in Drvar told me, not without some puzzlement, the Slovenes were the first to leave Yugoslavia and now they're the most Yugo-nostalgic. It seems to be a little bit of a contradiction.
1: It is, it is. That's why I know I'm, you know, I'm, I'm referring to Freud at this point. He's not speaking about nostalgia, he never uses this phrase, but in his fantastic text, Mourning and Melancholia, uh, this is the text about nostalgia. So nostalgia is, in a way, a broken emotion. You can be nostalgic for something that you are completely sure that it will never emerge again, that it will never happen again. So you are playing with an idea. How, if I would stay with that person, oh, how I wish I was a kid again, you know, oh, that kind of stories, that kind of reveries, that cannot be fulfilled. And this is, if you ask me, you know, the main point of sentimental nostalgia. Playing with the idea, not meaning seriously, if I'm Frank. So it's a wish for the wish, not a wish for something to be realized, something that could be really realized. You mentioned nostalgia in Slovenia. It's much more cultural. It's much more, you know, in terms of, I don't know, design, you know, a consumer nostalgia, a nostalgia for everyday life, simplicity of those times. A recurring phrase that I heard, you know, from Moscow when I was doing field work there to Slovenia is, you know, we had nothing, but we had everything, you know. So we were very happy with the few things that we we had. And today we have much more, but we are not satisfied. So this, again, you know, very existentialist, you know, tension of dissatisfaction of what is going on today. And especially if some things that were before very obvious, I don't know, like social security, health security, friendship within na- between nations and so on, you know, between you know, different groups, you know. Then you start to think maybe, you know, 80s were really, you know, times when, when things were better than now.
0: A very good segue to the 1980s here and nostalgia for that decade, or perhaps Retromania, that's been underway for a while now. In the ensuing discussion, Midya Valikonia expanded on the political and cultural developments during this decade and the reasons for 80s nostalgia. This discussion is in the extended version of this episode, available to Remembering Yugoslavia Patreon supporters. Find it at patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia. another cover of another 80's song by another legendary band, EKV Ljudi gradova People from Cities rendered in Macedonian by PMG Collective from Skopje Buy their music too Cities are the loci for another strand of Mitya Velikonia's study of the cultural memory of socialism in Yugoslavia In his latest book Post-Socialist Political Graffiti in the Balkans and Central Europe, the coiner of terms that he is, he coined the term for the study of graffiti, graffitology. One of the subject matters was graffiti related to Yugoslavia. I've seen some on my travels, say, for Yugoslavia with Sarajevo as the capital on the wall around the stadium in Podgorica. So, Mitya, what do you know about Yugo graffiti?
1: Well, they shouldn't be there, If, <laughs> to make the long story short, you know. So, <laughs> Yugoslavia collapsed, you know, who cares about Yugoslavia? But they are, you know. One of the points of my my scholarship as such, you know, I'm interested in the things that should not be there, of the freedom that people take that no one gives them, you know, they have no right to do it, but they do it as the punks did back in the late 70s or, you know, alternatives, you know, feminists and others, you know, did back in the 80s, you know. So again, you know, the walls are there. I always tell my students, you know, that before the Facebook wall, there was a wall out there made out of bricks. And uh, people throughout the history of, of, of mankind did things on their walls, you know. They painted them, they, they scratched them, you know. Graffiti was always a kind of compensation for the communication deficit. So kind of weapon of the week, if I can re- refer to phrase of, of James C. Scott, a famous anthropologist, you know. So you don't have other means to express yourself and you do it on, on the wall illegally. So this is, you know, the most important part of the graffiti scene is that there are public interventions, pu- visual public interventions uh, made illegally, you know, so uh, they are not commissioned. And you're mentioning, you know, this graffiti that are, you know, that you saw and I also saw from in different places in Yugoslavia who are, you know, pro, pro-Yugoslav. pro This is very interesting. I was comparing. It's very difficult to quantify, uh, but they are the, the ratio between pro and anti-Yugoslav graffiti today is 5 to 1, 6 to 1, you know. So there are more pro than against uh, Yugoslavia. Political graffiti about Yugoslavia, most of them are in Bosnia and Herzegovina, a lot of them in some parts of Croatia, for example, in left-leaning Istria and Rijeka, and in some places also here uh, in Slovenia. Less in Serbia and quite some in Montenegro again, you know, but they are spread, you know, quite all over the place, including in Kosovo. I saw a fantastic stencil of, of Tito in Prizren, which is in extreme west of Kosovo. Uh, What what is the point? Uh, For those who are writing, uh, spraying this graffiti or, you know, putting stickers or doing stencils, there's not enough Yugoslavia today in public discourses, out in the streets, in people's minds. So I will balance this deficit of Yugoslavia by writing Tito today. Or by writing long live Yugoslavia or long live partisans or something like that. Really, you know, the imagination is incredible when it comes to all kinds of different political graffiti, but when it comes to Yugoslavia, we suddenly face the same phrases that were made during the Second World War by the partisans or after the war or what we were taught back in the 70s in the primary uh, school. But on the other side, there's also, of course, a lot of uh, anti Yugoslav or to say it broadly. Uh, right-wing graffiti, you know, I was recently in Belgrade, just across uh, the street of my hotel, there was a graffiti that said Mladic Heroj, so Ratko Mladic, one of the butchers of Bosnia, he's a hero, so this was the the, 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 the graffiti. But on the other side, on the other side of the same door, it was the date when the Srebrenica massacre started. So 11th July 1995 and bloody hands, palms of the hands in red color, you know. So you had, you know, nationalist and anti-nationalist graffiti, literally, you know, one meter uh, away. Another, Another maybe interesting characteristics of when it comes to political graffiti is that traditionally streets were public spaces were more, Uh, the domain of the left uh, side, left-wing activists. And in recent years, I see more and more these confrontations with the right-wing graffiti uh, writers and those who are making stickers and stencils and so on. So there's, uh, again, you know, counter-hegemonic situation in pure, you know, Gramscian terms. It's going on in different places, not only uh, here in the Balkans, but practically everywhere. What's your favorite Yuga joke? Slovenia and Serbia are playing in the European Basketball Finals, and Tito asks, against whom?
0: It all started with rakia and soup. Over the army lunch, Mitya joked that there is such a thing as a Balkanologist Mafia. If that's the case, the occasion felt like an initiation by one of the copy, since of course the not-so-secret group is as decentralized or confederated as Yugoslavia itself was. The exploration as an immigrant of my own nostalgia, both for what I knew and for what I did not know, namely Yugoslavia, led me to the study of Yugo-nostalgia. As everything in the Balkans, it's more complicated than just a simple emotion. It is thanks to people like Mitya Velikonia that I have been able to dig through its many layers. In fact, Mitya will be back on the show soon. For now, I'm off to listen to Termity and Disciplinska Komisija <music> Yugoslavia. It was very nice for me, like a memory. Six years ago, an Uruguayan artist received an email with a list of postal addresses of Yugoslav male artists. The attachment led him down the path of discovery, unintended consequences, and the art that spans decades and dictatorships and continents and generations. On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, Uruguayan artists, Yugoslav male art, and the power of the post. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, song embeds and a transcript of this episode in the show notes at rememberingyugoslavia.com podcast. If you like the show, there are many ways to support us and help keep the memory of that disappeared country alive. Follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our email newsletter, tell your friends, share the episode links on social media, become a monthly supporter on Patreon. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petric, additional music by no Sense and Petar Alargic licensed under Creative Commons. Songs by Slobodna Europa and PMG Collective played with permission and eternal gratitude. Buy their music and swag. Mám je Petr Korchniak. Ciao.